Hey everybody, welcome to Theology on Tap. We're going to get started. If you want to grab a drink or slice of pizza, go ahead and make your way to a seat. Uh, we've got plenty of room. We are so glad that you are here. Happy New Year. Nobody's. Happy nobody's, New Year, Justin. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> yeah, Happy New Year to y'all. I care uh, about you, Justin. Thanks. It's been like four weeks, five weeks since we've been here. So, Did I, did I just drop out? Nope. It's been about a month since we had our last theology on tap, so we are itching to get back. If this is your first time, we are so glad that you are here. You'll see these little sheets of paper kind of peppered around the room. The way this evening's going to go is we're probably going to talk till about 8 o'clock, and uh, what you can do during that time is you can text in any question at all for Brian and I. It doesn't have to relate to our topic tonight at all. Uh, you'll see but other... It can. it can. Yeah, happy to have have that um, but we will get started at about eight o'clock on addressing those questions you'll see other people's questions in there and you can just like those who's moderating for us tonight Mr. Colton. hey awesome Colton thank you Colton so he'll be able to look at all the questions and he'll pose them to us and we'll do our best to get through as many as we possibly can but we're gonna have a great time uh, the topic for tonight you know it's the new year and last year, about this time, we talked about resolutions, right? And so I was like, we could do that again, but we did it last year, so we probably shouldn't do that. And then also, I started a marriage class at St. Philip's. Your daughter's getting married this week, and so between the idea of marriage yeah. and New Year's resolutions, one word came to my mind, and that was failure. <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is failure. And I only am half-joking, because... The Bible actually has a lot to say about failure, and so there's a number of ways we can kind of come at this. Brian, where would you like to begin tonight? Well, I think there are lots of different ways, as you just said, to come at this topic, but I think it's a hugely important topic, and it's one that is important to think about, especially if you're a Christian, through a theological lens, because all of us have failed. All of us will fail. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways that our culture gives messaging about failure. And one of the things that I think is so important to distinguish that I think the scriptures tell us is that there is a difference between failing at something and deciding that you are a failure. And I think that is one of the places where we get really tripped up in our culture that if things don't go right, we begin to start telling ourselves that I am a failure, and then there's a whole raft of emotional um, brokenness that comes from that. But I think that learning how to process and think about failure in a healthy way can actually, and this sounds strange, but it can be one of the most life-giving and joy-filled things uh, that you can experience. But I think... For whatever reason, there's not a lot of teaching out there about this most of the time. I could probably count on one hand, and I'm old, um, the number of times I've heard somebody preach on failure. Uh, so I think it's, it's definitely a good thing to be addressing. And I think one, one great place to start uh, in looking at failure and, is in Genesis 3. And part of what I love about the scriptures is that they're so real. Um, they are not just perfect people doing perfect things all the time and you look at them and you're like wow i wish i could do that 
Um, that is just not the way it is. You see people, and they are messing up all the time. So if you go to Genesis 3, it is right where Adam and Eve and the apple story happens. And so it's, uh, you know, in theological terms, the fall of mankind. So that's kind of a big deal. That might be kind of a big failure uh, to have all of God's creation derailed uh, because of your disobedience. But yet, what's so interesting in Genesis, and we've all heard the story, so we don't notice how amazing this is. Instead of God just saying, okay, you people, I don't know what I was thinking when I created you. Zap, zap, your toast, gone. Um, that's not what God does. After they have messed up, um, God knows what they've done, but he goes looking for them while they are hiding. And hiding is what we usually do when we fail. But God goes looking for them and says, where are you? And he pursues them in the midst of their failure. And I think that is such an important theological framing um, to see that. Because I think for most of us, if you're like me, if you fail, what you want to do is hide. You want to go down in a little hole. You don't want to be with people. Um, and seeing the way that God approaches this um, with love and initiative and reaching out, there's something profoundly important about that. Yeah, yeah there's so much in what you just said that would be really good to talk about. Um, I think we'll probably camp out in Genesis 3 for a while. Uh, but going back to even just defining failure, I think would be really important. Um, failure is the opposite of success. And I think we live in a day that has a hard time of actually, you know, defining what that actually is. But the Bible for success, how would, how would the Bible define maybe success? Um, I think the, the biblical definition of success would be to be in relationship with God where you enjoy him forever, basically. And that you are um, seeking after God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a result of that, you're aligning with his will, which brings you joy. Um, so I think that's the biblical definition. The problem is that our cultural definition of success is really messed up. And um, many of us have bought into what I would call the American success myth, which is work hard when you're in school so you can make great grades, so you can get into the best college, because when you get into the best college, then you can get the best job where you will make the most money and then you're a success and you're happy and the world is your oyster. And the problem with it is it's a lie. And people do that and even if it works for them and they get all those things, they get in that job and they're like, I hate this. Um, I'm working all the time, I'm miserable. Um, so that definition of success is really important because failure is the flip side of whatever your definition is. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this on the way over, but the idea that um, you know failure can be something that happens because you neglected to do something or you did the opposite of something that you should have done, or it could ha it, failure could come about because something happened that was beyond your control. And how you respond in given why the failure happened is gonna be important to address. One of the things you said earlier though, um, was about the difference between, uh, I think, guilt and shame, right? Mm -hmm. And so the whole concept of hiding, all of that is I, what you said, I am wrong. It's not just I've done something wrong. I've, I've broken uh, a law or something like that. I haven't done what I should have done or I did something that I shouldn't do. 
All of that is legal language that is guilt kind of language. I am wrong, and shame that's shame, right? Is the, the sense that everybody sees you and I'm exposed for being wrong. All of that is in the shame category. And going back to Genesis 3, that's what we see the first response of you know Adam and Eve when they transgress the law of God. When they, I, mean, I would say uh, success would be, uh, as you said, knowing, having a right relationship with God. Part of that is obedience to Him. Living in the way that He's designed the world would be a, um, a definition of success. And they, they do the opposite of that. And the first result is that they have a broken relationship with God, they have a broken relationship with themselves, and they even have a bro- broken relationship internally, I think, where they start to experience shame and now they, they start to cover themselves because they are naked. And as you said, God takes that initiative. And I think what stands out to me is that um, often in the world when it comes to failure, I see three major ways to respond. Either you just um, deny it altogether, I didn't, I didn't fail, I'm gonna redefine what success was, um, or I'm going to wallow in my failure completely, um, or and just become immobilized. Yeah, yeah, just completely wallow in the shame. Or it's like a pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and like I'm going to double down in my own strength, and I'm just going to do better and be better. And a lot of the self-help motivation that you hear out there kind of is that that last one. And what's so different about the Bible is it's ne- neither of those. It doesn't deny that you've done something wrong. He had, God addresses Adam and Eve and says, no, you, you've done what you shouldn't have done. Um, but he covers their shame. He forgives their sin, and he covers them in their brokenness. And then he, instead of like just doubling down in their own strength, he calls them forth to, to try and live a life that is more in tune with him out of the forgiveness and gratitude that he's experienced. So it's a totally different way of approaching failure than a lot of folks in the world, I think. Yeah, and I think one of the things that happens is that we can, we can be in denial about failure and just refuse to accept responsibility, um, even when it is clearly like, if my New Year's resolution is to get up at 6 a.m. and run five miles every morning, and I just keep hitting the snooze button um, day in and day out, um, there's not really anyone to blame for that except myself. Um, but I, I can deny that. Um, but one of the one of the things that I think happens is that we we just want to when we fail we want to blame other people and you see that very often um, just right back in Genesis it's actually hilarious when you read it when God comes and says what is this that you have done to Adam Adam immediately is like she did it she gave me the woman you gave me god that woman she's the one that gave me the apple and so not only is it her fault but it's god's fault and then when he says to eve well, what is it you've that snake that snake that you made and put in here he's the one that did it so we're all all about blaming but the problem with that is that it's an endless cycle of going downward um, it doesn't go anywhere. And the other thing that it can lead to is a root of bitterness. And scripture has a lot to say about a root of bitterness. But it's just like, you know, if you watch the Rocky movie, um, the, the I could have been a contender line, you know, where you're like blaming other people for things. And you think like your whole the whole arc of your life is off because these things happen. 
And that is just so profoundly unhealthy to deal with failure in that way instead of taking responsibility, looking at the situation, and then trying to live into God's design for you. Yeah, I think even in the secular world, you'll hear, like, stop making excuses and take ownership for what you've done tends to be the more uh, the narrative that you hear out there, I think. What would you say to somebody who uh, maybe it's out of their own fault, they keep failing in a, a number of different areas. How would you encourage them in that moment of like, I keep failing in this area. What can you tell me to help me? Well, I think I would ask questions before I would tell them anything. And I think one of the questions that I would ask is, if it's continual failure of the same sort, why is it that you think this is such an important thing to keep trying to do? Um, Another thing I would ask them is, what do you feel like you're good at? What do you feel like are the things that bring you joy? What do you see as ways that God might have made you to enable you to be a blessing to other people? Um, Those kinds of things. I think I would also ask questions about um, who are you hanging out with? What are you doing um, with your spare time? One of the things that you see over and over again in Scripture is this principle that probably is best summed up in Proverbs where it says bad company corrupts good character. But in our culture and the vernacular, another way of saying that is you become your friends. So if if you're totally hanging out with people and you're saying, you know, my problem is I keep falling back into doing drugs. Well, if all your friends are doing drugs... Um, Thank God you're not falling back in that. Yeah, so you might, you might need to, like, change your friend group. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is if you are um, a guy and you are 4 feet 11 inches tall and you are determined to try to be a forward in the NBA, um, you can keep trying... But it's probably just not going to happen because you're going against your design. Mm-hmm. So I think teasing out those kinds of things, and then um, after that, talking about the fact that one of the things we believe uh, as Christians is that God has made you in his image, and he has made you with gifts, and he has made you with goodness. And yes, you are fallen and you are a sinner. But the image of God is still within you, and there are gifts that are still within you that God desires to use, not just for you to have your own um, Netflix and popcorn by yourself and enjoy cocooning, but God desires to use you to make a difference in the world and in other people's lives. Yeah. So, in listening to what you just said, like if it's a sinful goal, like if what you're trying to do is clearly go against the morality of like what scripture teaches that's probably something that you need to like stop trying to do right um or if say it's going against kind of who god has made you uh, uniquely right Mm -hmm. if you're going back to the example of being under five feet tall and going into like the nba that's just not who god has made you to be let's say for example somebody is trying to live out say like some of the ten commandments or some of like the moral codes of the scriptures and they keep bumping up into that same sin. They're jealous all the time. They can't help but gossip. Um, and yet they have Christian friends. They're around um, the church. They're reading their Bible. And yet they still feel like they're falling into that. What, what about in that scenario? Um, I think several things in that scenario. One would be to 
um, spend some time just reflecting on what it means to be a sinner who's trying to follow Jesus. And I think that part of, sometimes we embrace um, what I would call the cultural Superman or Superwoman myth that once you're a Christian, you're just going to like live the victorious Christian life um, 24-7. You're never going to have any struggle. And the problem with that is it begins this sort of self-congratulatory narrative in your head. And yeah, Paul talks about the gift that the thorn in the flesh was. Um, yeah, Paul talks about it, he had these things that he, and he never specifies exactly what it is, but these things that continue to plague him in his Christian life and discourage him. But that the way that he processed that was to turn it around to realize how great Jesus's grace was in his life and how um, he didn't need to rely on his own power and strength, but he could glory in the grace of God. And that that was not an excuse um, for things that he was struggling with, but that um, he needed to see those in the context of being a child of God. Yeah. Yeah, I think... So you, what would you say I mean, to that? Yeah, like I would agree with you there. I think trying to figure out ultimately what is your heart looking to love when you do these things that you know you shouldn't be doing, right? And we see this even in Paul in Romans 7 where here is... He calls himself the chief of sinners, and yet he wrote like half the New Testament. And so one of the misconceptions that I think people have is the, um, I'm just going to naturally just be getting better in my Christian walk, and I, that means I'll be uh, more holy and all that, and it's like this straight line that they imagine. And I don't think that's kind of the image of, it's more like the stock market that kind of goes up and down. And But it's a realization that like you're, until you meet Jesus face to face in the next life and you're totally transformed like your your flesh the bible calls it like the sinful nature that we have that's still with us even in the christian life that's slowly being killed is uh is with us and um we need to keep turning from that but i think people's expectations are just that maybe they're never going to to sin again and it's really important i think the evidence of seeing and, and being able to look at your sin, being able to look at your failure honestly, is a characteristic of somebody who's living a life more in touch with the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't, ex like you said, that doesn't excuse their, uh, their doing it, nor does it, uh, do they feel content going forward. But it is this tension of, I can look at it, I know it's not right, and I'm going to repent, which turn away from it. And... And to lay hold of the resources that are that are there. So actually, I think the first thing I would do is say confessing it is the first thing. Mm -hmm. Talking to mm -hmm. uh, talking taking to God, responsibility. taking responsibility, yeah. Yeah. but also sharing it with with those who maybe you haven't shared that with before. That's a really important thing. That's what we need as the church. And then trying to find patterns of okay, if that's what I'm uh, not doing, what am I doing instead? And trying to find the pattern of. Where is my heart? What is actually loving in the other areas of that? And trying to figure out some of the patterns there. Yeah, and I think a, a good question to ask, uh, if you were a plant, you probably never thought a lot about what life might be like if you were a plant. Uh, but if you're a plant, your life is deeply affected by where you're planted. Mm. Um, whether you're in the sun or you're in the shade, if you're in a place where there's water or not, and so one of the things that I think is important, even as Christians, we can distance ourselves from the things that the scriptures tell us 
will feed us and cause us to flourish. And worship is one of those. A lot of times we can think of ourselves as being committed to worship, but then it may be like the last thing on our list that we're like really committed to. And there's something about worshiping corporately. You can certainly worship individually, but there's something about worshiping corporately where you're with a group of people whose whole focus is turned toward God, that that shifts your perspective on life. And so I think those kinds of things, um, what, you're, what you're feeding your mind, what images you're looking at, what uh, people you're with, and then again, the, the sort of the vulnerability and fellowship thing. One of the problems that a lot of us have is we can be our own worst enemy, and we think we did something and we're so ashamed of it, and we think God cannot forgive me for that because that was so awful. And then we think, well, I certainly could never tell anyone else that I did that because they would just reject me, and then it would be even worse. But the fact of the matter is that there's nothing that God cannot forgive us mm -hmm. and that the blood of Christ covers all of that. And it's actually really arrogant to think that what you did in your own strength was so much that it can't be met by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So we have to kind of get over ourselves and confess, as you just said. Um, but also, when you share that with someone who loves you, who's a brother or sister in Christ, and then you experience their forgiveness, it can help you to understand how much more God will forgive you. Yeah, I think going back to Genesis, where the first reaction is they want to cover themselves because they're experiencing shame. And they, they do that so inadequately with fig leaves. And that's a great picture of the ways when we fail, when we try to reclude, like kind of act like recluses and basically say, all right, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. And, you know, God, it, it, it's as if he can't see what I've done. Of course, that's just crazy because he knows exactly where they are, even though they're hiding from him and they're covering themselves up. And I think that's such an important picture of the ways that when we look to anything else besides Jesus' sacrifice for us, um, what Paul calls um, a righteousness that comes from faith. And I think this is it's a, a theological term, but like something that's really helpful when failure happens is to recognize that like your standing before God is not dictated upon your performance. Any kind of righteousness, any kind of uh, record of your own, the whole point of the gospel is that we're saved not because of how great we are, but he, Jesus comes to save failures. And that he did this by giving up his perfect record on our behalf, that we could receive that by faith. And so I think in the, in the nitty-gritty, when talking to folks who are really down in the dumps about a failure, it boils down to, do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe that Jesus' love for you and his sacrifice for you is enough? That you don't have to go and try and put more fig leaves on, that you can act, and that he actually sees you as you really are, warts and all, and he still moves towards you in love. That is a, a motivation then, once that takes root, to actually both look at it honestly, to talk with other people about it, but it gives you that courage to take that next step in the new direction that you're going. Yeah. Um, and I think one aspect of that, I think it's so hard because we live in such a performance sort of culture um, that we, we feel, even if we say theologically we don't believe this, we act a lot of the time as if we need to earn God's approval. Mm -hmm. And that if we do A, B, and C, then God is going to love us more. And the fact of the matter is God loves you infinitely 
exactly the way you are right now, no matter what you do. And his love for you is like the love that a good parent has for their child that is not dependent on their actions or their obedience or their disobedience. They just have chosen to set their love on them because they're their child. And I think that we get hung up because we, we feel like we've got to earn that approval from God. And when you realize that it is all grace, um, God's unmerited favor that he's chosen to set on us, it is unbelievably freeing. Mm. And we, we need to be reminded of that on a regular basis because since our whole culture is so performance-oriented, it creeps into our spiritual life all the time. Now, I will say, when you're walking with God, um, you will experience a level of fellowship that's different, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether God loves you more. Yeah, um, let's see. how we, It's about that time. Any concluding thoughts? That I, I think we've covered a lot of what I wanted to talk about yeah, tonight. Um, the only thing I would say is if you, if you are struggling with failure, and particularly if you are in that camp where you feel like, I am a failure. Mm-hmm. Not that I have failed at some external things, but I am a failure. I would really encourage you to come talk to Justin or me or someone who is a spiritual mentor in your life um, because that's not a place where you want to be living. And um, somebody who is maybe older and wiser um, and in touch with uh, what the scriptures teach may be able to help you get out of that mindset. Uh, but I think that that's not a place to dwell. Yeah. Um, that's a, such a good thing to, to say. I think pre- we've talked a lot, kind of abstract and concrete at times, but the things that have helped me most in my Christian life uh, have been those times where you actually do come clean with somebody else, right? And it's, we, we don't believe that you have, like God knows and talking to him is great, but sometimes you just need another person to be able to share that with. And I love, there was a point in college for me where somebody shared Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: he who confesses his sins um, will find mercy, and but whoever conceals them will not prosper, will not find success. And that was shocking to me, just like, I felt like I was the only one. Yep. And yep. having done this now for a little, you know, decade now, it's amazing, amazing how many people feel like they're the only one and that nobody can really know yep. this yep. about me. And yep. so I think that's a great place to end tonight, and we would encourage Except you. Except one more thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing that sort of relates to that is that the perspective of time can also be really important with this because you may think that you have failed at something, but in fact, as you get farther away in time, you may <laughs> see that whatever it was was a necessary step to getting toward where God wanted you to get. And Jesus himself is the greatest example of this. Jesus, who poured his life into his disciples for three years, when he was crucified on the cross, all of those disciples thought, this is the end. Everything that we've done has been a failure. Our lives are probably gonna be forfeit. We have wasted. This is the worst thing that has ever happened. We are all failures. But in fact, three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead, that whole perspective on what it looked like a failure changed dramatically. And you know, it may not change quite to that extent, 
uh, and our own lives, but I think that time perspective can make a big difference. Yeah. Now I'm done. <laughs> the more we talk, the more, I have like two things that came to mind, but I'm just going to share them later. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy talking with you. How are we doing on questions? Oh. He appears. Hello? Hey. Um, so we have a lot of questions. Um, some people already started liking those. If you could take 30 seconds to um, take a quick look at the questions and like those that you want answered, we will, we will move along after that. While they're doing that, one of the things that I think is appropriate to sum up a lot of what we've talked about, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, Jack Miller. He's a pastor in, in, uh, outside of Philadelphia. And he had this famous line saying, cheer up, you're far worse than you realize. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. so important yeah. for us today because we live in a day that denies the fact that we're all really corrupt, selfish individuals. Like, ever since the fall, that's how we're born. And the reality is we are far worse than we realize. And the encouragement, I, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, I couldn't remember the reference in Corinthians, but uh, it says godly guilt leads to repentance. And there's such a thing as... When you come in touch with your failure, that's a gift. Mm -hmm. Like God is actually showing you something that's true about you, that you need something beyond yourself. And uh, to not just deny that, to not just go past that quickly, but hear the Lord in, in coming to grips with who you really are, which is broken yet incredibly loved at yes. the same time. Yes. Great, so I just want to get this one out of the way. It's very controversial. Um, but people really appreciate, some people really appreciate you guys having the pizza slices cut larger. Are they larger? I didn't notice. You're welcome. <laughs> Brian cut it. I had nothing to do with it. Um, so the, the, the first actual question, how do we know when something is against our design? How do we know when we are failing because the Lord doesn't desire it for us versus it just being our own mistake? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, I think there a couple of things to think about. One, a question that I think we just don't ask ourselves enough is what brings me joy? And I think that if you are living into your design, there should be either joy that you are experiencing or you can see what the pathway to that joy might be. Um, whereas if you feel like you're just in a dark hole um, with no way out, that that probably is a clue that you're not living into your design. Um, I also think that asking people who love you and know you well um, kind of about what you are experiencing in that process can be really helpful because we, we live in a uh, narcissistic age where a lot of us are in our head a lot of the time and we don't, what, we, what we're circulating message-wise in our head may not always be accurate uh, reflection of ourselves. And people who love you well can help you with that. Scripture is another good place. Um, if, if you think your design is to sell drugs on Upper King Street on weekends, um, there probably is some scripture that might be able to be brought to bear on that um, that would uh, suggest pretty strongly that that was not your design. 
Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna push scripture as well because I think, uh, especially in our day, we have more access but less knowledge of what the Bible actually teaches than ever, and so. There are a number of things that our experience or our feelings will tell us um, that, hey, God wouldn't want me to feel this way, or God isn't, you know. And, and you're trusting ultimately in your own reason or your own um, experience, your own feelings. And I think we are at a point where we need to recover the full counsel of the, the Holy Scriptures to really know that's where we know for sure what God's design actually is. And so becoming familiar from Genesis to Revelation with who he is and how he's made men, what, what the Ten Commandments are even. I mean, that's like the basis of what Christian living is. Um, and, and what all does that entail? I think that is the first place that we should go in trying to figure out um, how God wants me to live in this life. Now, there are a lot of things, you know, who should I marry? What job should I take? Like, those are great questions that some of the answers you gave would be awesome for. But when it comes to moral issues, especially, you've got to go first to God's revealed yep. word yep. in the scriptures, which is what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Great question. How do we deal with the feeling of wasted time from failures? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, that is something where I think prayer and scripture and worship are again really important because if, if I'm understanding that question rightly, um, when you think about the time that you wasted on something that didn't work out, it's really easy to see it as a zero sum game where you, you've had that and it's gone and you're never getting it back and it was just utterly a waste and you were so stupid and then you just beat yourself up over and over and over again. But the fact of the matter is everything that you do, even if it seems like it was a waste, God uses that in God's economy as part of that tapestry of your life that he's weaving. There's this old story, um, I don't know how many of y'all have ever seen a beautiful tapestry or had somebody that did a needlepoint. You look at the front of it and it's just beautiful but if you go and look at the other side of it there's like all this yarn hanging out and it's ugly and disordered and all of that and the problem for most of us is that we're looking on the wrong side and so we see all this disorder and we think it was just a waste whereas in fact there often are things that we profoundly learn from things where we appear to waste our time i was telling someone earlier tonight i started off my college uh career being a piano performance major. And that lasted uh, for about six months before I realized that, first of all, I was not good enough to uh, have people want to fly me around the world to play with symphonies. Um, secondly, that I was extremely extroverted and spending six hours a day alone with a piano in an undergrad room was not a recipe for health and success. Um, but I learned profoundly from that. You can look at that and say that was a huge failure and you wasted six months of the four greatest years of your life in college. Um, but God used that. So I think a lot of it depends on your perspective. Yeah, I think this question, the way I hear it is it, just shame comes up. And I think we, shame is just absolutely satanic. Shame is something that wants to keep you, that's a strategy of, of Satan, I think. It's the strategy of the enemy 
to keep you in a place that's so immobilized, so discouraged that you just do nothing. Yeah. And, and shame is circular. The more you feel shame, the more you do the things that brought you shame in the first place. You start feeling guilty and shameful about wallowing in your shame. And that's all, that's all strategy of, of somebody who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. Yes. And Read the screw tape letters. Read the screw tape <laughs> letters. Uh, one of the verses that I, I really love when I'm in that place is Micah chapter 7. It's an Old Testament prophet. And he said, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And he's done just that in Jesus Christ. He's pled our cause, not because of our righteousness, but because of what he's done. He pleads our case. And that's where, going back to what we talked about, the importance of going back to what he's done for us and resting in that. Because all that the enemy wants to do is keep you going back into the shame and do nothing yeah. but wallow in it. Yeah. So, um, please don't crucify me, but I'm getting a little out of order here. Uh, just to follow up on that last point, um, are there spiritual forces from the devil that prey on us by pushing us towards the feeling of failure? Absolutely. Um, I think that is uh, one of the things that we, we don't understand, particularly in our modern Western culture, is that there is a spiritual reality and spiritual warfare that is going on all around us. And we are not actually just on a walk in the park where everything is um, neutral, safe ground. Um, that the Satan is real and he desires to discourage us. And again, Screwtape Letters is a terrific book to read about all of that. And that's part of the reason um, that scripture is so important because scripture uh, describes itself as being uh, like a sword uh, that pierces to truth. And we, we need that in our lives to be able to um, expose the schemes of Satan. But what Satan wants to do, if you really mess up, what Satan wants to do is to come to you and say, I can't believe that you did that. You said you were a Christian and you did that. How do you think God feels about you now? You're such a poser. You're a loser. You could never like go to church or Bible study or tell someone you did that or they would like literally throw you out of the church. And instead, if you look at what Jesus says, when horrible failures happened, Jesus could have told any story he wanted to about somebody who had failed and rejected God in the most awful and shameful way. And he tells the story of the prodigal son, the son who's wasted everything on prostitutes and gambling and is living with pigs. And yet, God is looking for him, waiting for him to come back. And the very best thing you can do when you've really messed up is just go immediately to God and throw yourself at his feet to receive his love and his embrace. Yeah, the, we answered this before, but Satan means accuser. And yep. when you fail and you hear accusation coming at you, just what you described, you can know that that is from the accuser, right? And um, yeah, so I think one of the things... Who was it? Maybe you remember. It was like 
some historical Christian that it was either Luther or Spurgeon or somebody that said, like, laughing at the devil when he comes to accuse you. And I think there's something to that. Maybe you don't know who I'm talking about, but there was some Christian who, I think it was Luther maybe, but was laughing and throwing yeah. it back on, yeah. on yeah. because of what the finished work of Christ and that you will not rejoice over me um, when the accuser comes. Like, yes. I think that's a good strategy. How can I begin to shift from living by culture's definition of success to living by the Bible's definition? Oh, that's such a good that's question. That's the question. Um, yeah. I think one of the things, again, is the, the old, uh, you know, the old phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, if you are constantly feeding yourself the cultural narrative of success, through what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're doing on social media, how you're investing your time, um, you are gonna have a really difficult time with that. But if on the flip side, you are reading, watching, um, engaging with uh, things that are modeling a biblical definition of success, uh, you will find that it makes a tremendous difference uh, that's one of the reasons that I am such a fan of Lord of the Rings and Narnia and all of those things because they are modeling a biblical understanding of success. And uh, the, the problem that we have is that we can say that we want to have that understanding, but if we're, if we're living under the, the flood tide of this culture that's giving exactly the opposite message, all the time and we're only spending 10 minutes a day praying and in scripture it's no wonder that we feel like we're drowning yeah. um, St. Augustine would answer this by saying um, what you do is going to inform what your heart loves and so what kingdom you That's live in better way yeah, what, what kingdom you live in what stories you ultimately believe about the world and about who you are are going to shape uh, at the end of the day what you do but what who you surround yourself with, as you're saying, like what you immerse yourself in, is teaching your heart what to love in many ways, which is why uh, in, in our tradition, like we do, all, we, we, we physically kneel down. We, we physically, like, we'll do these things. We go through uh, confession, we go through uh, singing, and it's not just when we feel like it, but we're doing these things so that our hearts may love that which we want them to love, right? And I think that's really important when we think about um, how do we have a certain vision of life that isn't what the world says, uh, but what the Bible says. And you have to remember that the way that this kingdom, this world operates, is to tell you that this is all that there is. But the Bible in the New Testament especially talks about we are exiles in a foreign land. We are sojourners passing through this land. And you have to be among people who are living according to that same story uh, who aren't trying to accumulate all the things that this is all that there is, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, what I would say. I struggle with same-sex attraction and feel like God set me up for failure. I often think of renouncing my faith, but also don't identify with the LBGT movement. Yeah, that is a great question and uh, thank you for being vulnerable enough to ask that. Um, I think that that 
is one of the most difficult things, particularly in our current culture, um, to be struggling with because a lot of people don't feel like that they can talk about that um, in the church. And the cultural message is that there's no issue at all. And so why do you even think there is an issue? Um, but I would say that it is something that is really important to talk through with an older Christian that you trust, um, who can help you maybe work through some of that. There's some great books out there um, that can help you work through some of the issues uh, surrounding that. Uh, I think that the other thing to understand is that uh, there there's this myth that's kind of grown up around Christianity that uh, the, the only way to be Christian, like the Christian ideal is to be ultimately married with one and a half children and two cars in the driveway. And that is just not biblical at all. And all through the New Testament, there are people who had been dealing with same-sex attraction and various other types of sexual addiction and all manner of things who chose to embrace a celibate life. And our culture tells us, if you're celibate, you are like less than and somebody to be pitied. But I just want to point out that Jesus was the perfect human and Jesus was celibate and single for his entire earthly life. And we have, we have put so much weight on sexual expression that we, we lose out on all of the other ways that God has made us in his image. But I would say certainly um, stay with the struggle. Please find someone um, that you can talk to. Either of us would be happy to talk to you, or if you don't want to talk to us, we can find someone um, who would talk with you. Um, but don't try to struggle with that alone. Yeah. I, I'm so encouraged to hear, even in that question, that not going off into, it'd be so easy, that the whole agenda to just say, well, uh, I mean, it's basically what we said earlier, like the, when, when you fail, what are the common ways people respond to failure today is, well, they just changed the, you know, the goal in the first place. They, they deny what um, the standard was, right? And I think that's one of the things that I am so encouraged by this question, that you you're recognize that I, I still feel this way, I've been born this way, um, and yet the Bible, I think, clearly teaches that this isn't the way God designed sexuality to ideally be. Um, but to not go off and say, well, it just must be all right then. And it's the really the, old, the um, original sin. It's an idea that we're all born not as blank slates, but we're all born with um, a sin nature. And, and yes, yeah, sexuality is kind of the linchpin issue of the day where if you don't live your sexually desired life, however that is, then you're less than human. Um, and so I think that's a particularly difficult sin today to deal with. But all of us have um, a sin nature that makes us question the goodness of God. And I think one of the things I want to just end with this question is that God didn't do this to punish you. And the proof of that is in the fact that he took on flesh and suffered, that this is a God who knows suffering. And he suffered to end all suffering. And that what eternity is going to be about is where that tension is removed. Mm -hmm.
the whole glimpse, I mean, I'm teaching on a marriage class. Marriage, and sex in particular, is a picture of, I mean, the magnitude of the relationship between us and God. It's the pinnacle of what that's meant to be. And if you don't have sex in this life, the reality of what it points to is what all Christians will enjoy in this loving friendship relationship with God forever. And that it's, as C.S. Lewis said, we can't envision what that looks like because we're so satisfied with the mud pies here on earth that we can't envision the holiday at the seashore. Yeah. So, um, I, please, I would love to talk to, with you about that. I'm so encouraged, and I know you may think that's ridiculous, but I am really am encouraged at the question. What advice do you have for a woman who put herself out for her family as a stay-at-home mother who now feels like she achieved nothing else in her life? I'm going to need to hear that again. <laughs> yeah, say that, say that one more time. What advice do you have for a woman who poured herself out for her family as a stay-at-home mother who now feels like she achieved nothing else in her life? Okay. Yeah, um, I think that is unfortunately something that is a, um, a perceived reality for a lot of people. Uh, and part of that, again, is because of the messaging that we get from our culture. Um, our culture tells you that the, it is a waste if you're a stay-at-home mom, that if you want to fully live into um, your womanhood, that you need to be able to um, express yourself exactly as a man would, and that, that that is what success looks like. And so if you don't do that, then you are somehow less than. But the fact of the matter is that the the modeling of self-sacrificial love that you see from a mother who has chosen to stay at home and pour herself out for her children is very much like the model that you see in Jesus himself. And it used to be that people literally said of people who are stay-at-home moms that that was the most noble calling that there was. And we, we have just lost that. So I think part of the, if this is someone who's in your life, I think part of it would be encouraging her and talking through about the magnitude of that sacrifice and that it's not a sacrifice for naught. And even if she's maybe looking at her children and not seeing the fruit of that, knowing that a lot of those seeds that are planted take a long time to bear fruit. Um, but I think just trying to encourage her um, with the idea that that is a noble calling and that is that is a beautiful way um, to use your gifts in a way that makes a an enduring difference in the world yeah yeah i think there's nothing more radical today and more needed than being um this could be taken way too bad but um having let's go ahead yeah this is not there's a potential to hear this the wrong way. Um, having children, which is a tremendous sacrifice to yourself, is one of the most um, noble callings that is needed today. Precisely because of what you said, I think we're in such an individualistic age that fulfillment, success, looks like me achieving my dreams. Children, by definition, um, don't control. Like, you give up everything. You give up sleep. You give up your job. I mean, you give up everything. 
and there's no like and what do they do they grow up in like 10 years they hate you mm -hmm. they hate you for everything you've never done anything for me and that is just what you hear and so throughout history it has been dying to yourself uh, to for the sake of your children what that does in you as a person I mean my wife has worked and she's a teacher been a teacher she's now um, working a couple odd jobs but she's primarily at home as well and uh, you know, that's one of the things I, I would never want to say you may not ever have work outside of the home. You look at Proverbs 31. This is a ideal uh, wife, woman who was pouring herself out for her family, but also had a tremendous, um, I mean, she was a entrepreneur who had a business and doing all sorts of stuff, but also you're in a season too. There will, you have children for a very limited amount of time before they become adults. You will have another chance um, if this person's in this room. Like you will have an opportunity to then work in, in another way that you just can't in this season, and that's that's okay. But to be encouraged that what you're doing is an incredibly noble and I think one of the most difficult things to do and to be called to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One more, two more. How do I know who God has made me to be? You kind of answered that a little bit. Yeah, so I think on the the macro level, I think for everyone, uh, there's the understanding that God has made you, um, just as we said before, to uh, live in fellowship with him and enjoy him forever. He's made you for that. Um, he has made you for joy. Um, if you are, um, and probably this is what uh, the questioner was meaning more, what is my purpose? Um, what is my calling in this life? Um, how do you figure that out? Again, I think part of that is looking at what your gifts are, um, what brings you joy, um, what, uh, what other people who know you and love you would tell you that you're good at, and what, what gifts and abilities you have that can be a blessing to others. I think part of where we get so messed up in this is we have... Even if we say we don't do this, I think we do it, um, which is that we, we think we've got to make a certain amount of money um, and, or else we're not doing our purpose. And that whole idea is just not anywhere in Scripture at all. But it's all over our culture. Yeah. And I think to complement what you're saying there, too, I would, in the negative, say, like, um, just because you do something and you experience toil and frustration may not be that you're not called to do this. Right. You know, I yes, think we live in a day that's like, as soon yeah. as you feel yeah. frustrated, God hasn't called me to do this. It doesn't bring me joy. Well, that is a whole category that's very, very new in our, you know, in the last 50, 75 years. Most people, what they were called to be, they, they didn't associate that with their work necessarily. It was more of family and, and relationships and that sort of thing. Uh, so I think that's an important thing to do is you think, if you think about it in terms of your job and occupation, every job, because of the curse, there's thorns and thistles that the creation now produces, you're going to experience frustration and to not just automatically assume that you're not called to that area because there's that. Yeah, and I think one of the things, and I'm sorry to say this, since y'all are all much younger than I am, but I'm sorry to say you have all been miseducated. Um, because it is that used, word? 
Yes, it okay. is. I've been uh, miseducated. Miseducated. <laughs> because it used to be uh, that the purpose of education was to teach you what it meant to live a life of meaning and purpose. And it had nothing to do with vocational skill or learning a job or anything like that. But it was an understanding of what, what life was about, what made for a life well-lived, what made for virtuous living, what made for the kind of life that leaves the world a better place when you die. Um, and we have stripped that completely out, for the most part, of our educational system and focused it almost solely on training to get a job. And the result of that is that people put this weight on a job that a job has never been supposed to be able to deliver, that all of your meaning and purpose and everything is supposed to be caught up in that job, and that, that is more than any job can actually do. All right. I think that's it. We are at 8.30. Um, thank you all so much for coming tonight. We will be back in two weeks on the 24th, and I'm so excited. We haven't done this in a long time, but we'll accumulate all the questions we haven't gotten to in the last, like, 12 Theology on Taps, and we'll put them into a bowl, and we'll try to get See through how as many of get. them. And so always fun, always guaranteed to be some really crazy questions Great questions. There. And one thing I did want to mention, because several people asked me about this, um, we are uh, slowly making progress through one of C.S. Lewis's great books called The Great Divorce. Several people asked me if it's too late to come to that. Not at all. I think we're just like maybe maybe a third of the way through the book. But that's on Wednesdays at St. Phelps from 7.15 to 8.15, um, studying The Great Divorce. So if you're interested in that, um, come check it out. The chapter tomorrow is on shame. Is it really? Yes. I'll be there tomorrow night. I, mean, I was planning to be there anyway, but now I'm definitely going to be there. All right. Thanks, y'all, for coming. Yeah, thanks this has been for a lot coming. of fun. Please feel free to hang out.